Well, it's good to see all you folks. I missed you last week. I'm glad to be here. And of course, all our guests, thank you for being here. And uh, I was thinking a lot about our Sunday school and the uniqueness, one of, as a group, and the loyalty and the faithfulness of God's people has been an encouragement to me. This is on, right? <laughs> but one of the things I've been thinking about is the old school versus the new school. So a lot of discernment on this. The new school doesn't like this format anymore. This, this is the old format. This is a teacher teaching the people that are supposed to be getting fed to get the meat of God versus us having an open discussion. And I, I mean, if I open this up to discussion, this would be, I don't know how we could handle that. You know, I just never know what somebody's going to ask. And because I've been in that new format before and it's just not for me. And, I, and I'm not saying it's wrong because th there are groups here that handle it that way and it's good for a younger crowd. But I think the more mature we get as believers and the older, this, this format's best for us. And it's just a simple teaching God's people who are sitting and listening and learning versus uh, let's have an open discussion. Hey, by the way, what do you think of that verse? That can lead to all kinds of problems. What do you think about that verse? Because we're all going to have a little bit of an opinion based on our knowledge of Scripture, right? So... So just to understand our format, especially for our visitors, when you come here, this is pretty much how we've been doing this now for, well, 42 years. Not me, but this, this uh, format here for this church. And so uh, we're trying to wrap up 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, again, there's going to, you know, we got some in-depth stuff that I want to share with you, but we'll also move quicker in some areas of Corinthians. So we, we might go through an entire chapter in one Sunday morning. Versus we've been through almost three, almost four weeks just to get through chapter one. Because there's so much here, and I, I think I'm going to really park here for a few minutes and then walk you through these remaining verses in 1 Corinthians chapter one. Because it's incredibly insightful about how God works and His ways and how God's, the means of which God uses people is profound and, and, and it really gives you a glimpse into here with this verse. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wide. Now, first we have to understand, God's not foolish, nor did he, does he ever do anything foolish. What that verse is telling you is that's how man perceives what God does as foolish. Now, the word foolish is absurd, stupid. That's how you, you would interpret that. The, the, so, this is how man perceives what God does. And... I thought about this verse for all of us as believers, and perhaps many of you have learned this, but if there was ever a life lesson to learn, this would be the, these would be the next few verses about how God works in our lives. Because we would save ourselves a lot of heartache and a lot of hardships if we could just pay attention to these verses and obey them and, and trust God by faith, because God doesn't work like we work. He doesn't think like we think. His... You'll see this verse here, his ways are not our ways. And so God often works in a way that appears foolish to us. I'm going to show you a couple of biblical examples. Well, he often works in a way that doesn't make sense, doesn't seem fair, and yet we got to trust him. And a lot of times when we get into those situations, we take matters into our own hands instead of accepting what God's doing, and as a result, we make a mess of things. And, and so we got to learn to just accept what God does sometimes is foolish. It, it doesn't make sense to us. And um, I remember giving you a couple weeks ago that example. We closed out with the laborers. 
perfect example of how God doesn't make sense. I mean, here's a bunch of fellows that show up for a 12-hour shift. They get 100 bucks for the day. I'm just using street language here. And, and they're all good with that until a couple fellows show up at 5 o'clock with an hour left in their shift. They get paid the same amount of money. 100 bucks. Now, I don't know about you. If I worked 12 hours and somebody worked an hour, I'd be, I'd be livid. I'd be, I'd be upset. I, that doesn't make sense to me. It seems foolish to me. It seems absurd. It seems stupid. But that's how God works. And we just got to accept God, what He does, instead of taking matters into our own hands. So, so my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. And so, we talked about the parable of the laborers, but we thought I talked about a, or I looked at a couple other biblical examples. The walls of Jericho. Now God goes to Joshua and says, "Joshua, here's what I want you to do. They're at a standstill. They got to go through Jericho, and Jericho is this fortified city. There's no going through that unless God intervenes. So God says, gives them some simple instructions. You got to think of how foolish this would seem to anybody." including those that were observing from the outside, when God says, what I want you to do, Israel, is I want you to march around this city in silence for six days straight. And on the seventh day, I, not, I want you to walk around it not once, but twice. I don't want you to say a word. But when you're done on that second, day, on that second time, on the seventh day, I want you to blow those, those horns as if... Your, the roof was coming off, and I want you to shout as if your life depended on it, and then watch me work. Now, you get those kind of instructions. What are you thinking to yourself? I'm walking around a city, and God's going to... What's happening here? It seems absurd. It seems foolish. But we know what happened. At the moment, they stopped on the seventh day, the second time around, and they did exactly what God told them to do. God took those walls down and destroyed that city for them. But that is how God works and the way he works. And it's a profound truth and insightful for us to kind of just learn to trust God when it doesn't make sense. Because the wisdom of man tries to make sense of everything, but the wisdom of God doesn't make sense to us. It's spiritual. It's so far above us about what God can do and what he's doing. Another example is naming the leper in 2 Kings 5. I mean, here's a guy that's got scars left over from leprosy, but he's a captain of the of the army, and he founds, finds out that he can be healed of his leprosy, at least the leftover scars. And he gets, he gets to heading down to go see Elijah, and not only does Elijah not come out to see him, he sends his servant to give him instructions on what to do. And he's the captain of the host uh, of the army, and he's, he doesn't, Elijah didn't even take the time to go out and see him. And he gets ripping mad when he's told, not only does Elijah not come out to see me, he sends his servant, but now he gives me instructions to go bathe in the Jordan River. And he's and he, first thing in his mind is Jordan of all rivers is the dirtiest of rivers. Why not the better, more cleaner rivers? Why would God choose that river over these other rivers? That's how we think. And the servants uh, around uh, uh, Naaman said, well, if, if the prophet of God tells you to do that, don't you think you should do this? And so he got a little common sense for a moment, and he said, I guess I better do it. And what did he do? He went and washed in the dirty river of Jordan, and seven times he dipped himself. And when he came out of that, he had skin like a brand new baby. See, it just goes with the ways of God. They seem foolishness unto us. And 
And you're going to see more of this here in a minute, but how God works in His ways. And boy, if we learn this life lesson, and some of us have, and we've learned to trust God, not all of us though, if we learn that sometimes things are not going to make sense when God's working, you just got to sit there and wait on God to work. And I got a couple of good examples, hopefully, for you here in a minute. More on this. The Bible says God hath chosen, here it is, the foolish, the weak, the base, and the despised. Now, how's that a def? What do you think about that as a definition for what is success by God? Now, the wisdom of man, that's the opposite of how man works and how he thinks of leadership. Imagine me working for someone, a boss of mine, and walking in and says, I, I found the perfect candidate. I, I got a candidate for you. Yeah, tell me all about him. Well, first of all, he's foolish. He's not the smartest. He's not the brightest tack or sharpest tack in the, in the drawer. And by the way, he doesn't, he doesn't have much. Uh, he's not that smart. He's, he's a little weak, you know. He has not much to look on. He doesn't have much presence to him. And he's not really sociable, social. Those are the things that God looks for, for success. Why? Because that's what God works through. You think about what Paul said. Paul said, or God said to Paul when Paul was asking God to do something for him, to remove something from his life, he said, Paul, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then that's when Paul concluded, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Why? Because the power of God now rests on me. And so Jesus really cleared all. He hits the nail on the head in Luke 16, verse 15. He says, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. We live in a world that worships man. You've got your Hollywood stars. I mean, the red carpet moments, right? Oh. They're just, they can't get enough of these folks. And yet their just lives are just turned upside down. They're such a mess, but they're they're just put on a pedestal. It goes for, for athletes. Sports athletes are put on these pedestals. You think about musicians and how they're put think about in, incredibly intelligent individuals like Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Steve Jobs from Apple, how we put them on a pedestal as if they're we give them godlike status. But Jesus said. That which is highly esteemed among men, that's admired and respected of men, is an abomination in the sight of God. It's the very opposite. God's not looking for that. He's looking for the weak, the foolish, the despised. And those examples are just innumerable and throughout Scripture. So shepherd boy over a king and his army. Think about pretty boy David, who had no warrior experience, and yet God selected him to defeat the enemy. Here, the enemy going against Israel, and Israel wouldn't make one move. The king, not all the warriors, and yet David steps up to the plate says, is there not a cause? And God chose him. He was a weak vessel. He was despised. They laughed at him. They mocked at him. Well, what are you doing here, pretty boy? I mean, go back to your little pasture and do your, your sheep thing. And what, who did God use? The shepherd boy. And that's how God works. That'll help anybody here to understand how God works and the, the, the method by which God works. You think about the people that, the disciples that Christ picked, hand-picked. None of them would have been picked by any religious leader. These were the offshoot, the unfit, as we would say, the misfits of society. We got fishermen who were unlearned, they weren't educated, 
And yet that's who God picked, a tax collector. He picked, he picked people we would never pick for success. God picks people that he's looking for that he can use because they're weak and they're despised. Now that may not make us feel good because we, we want to feel like, you know, I'm, I got talent, I got skills, I got gifts. Where did you get that from? Yeah. And God can take that away too. And he, and he has. But here's God, Jesus picking the, the misfits of society over the most intelligent, sophisticated doctors of his day in religion. Seems odd to me, but that's because that's how God works. You think about the harlots and publicans. You know, th this is what we call the scum of the earth. These are the real sinners. I'm not really a sinner, but that's the real sinner, the, the one who gives their body over and the one that's the alcoholic and the drug addict. But that's who God was picking. To, to, not only to follow him, but to serve him. I mean, Mary Magdalene, how many demons did she have in her? Seven. But yet, he, she got converted, she got saved, and she followed him. The ministry was there at the cross. She was there at the, re, the, the resurrection site. God knew and he chose those kind of individuals. It's not that he doesn't want the chief priests and elders, but they don't want God. That's the difference. They don't see the need for God. They wallow in their own self-righteousness and not the righteousness of God. So really what this comes down to is <clears throat> when I'm broken and when I'm weak and I can't do it, that's when the power of God can rest on me. But if I step up to that plate and I'm depending on my own skills, my own intelligence, my own abilities, my own, own, own me, 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 then the power of God is absent in my life. And I'm left to myself. God's going to pull that power. And, and this is what this is all about, is God using people that can't do it. And that's how we always should approach anything we do for God, is I can't do this, God. And you'll see this in chapter 2 with Paul. When he says, I'm weak, I'm trembling, there's fear. That doesn't sound like a man who's been called to be an apostle, does it? But he proves that it wasn't his power, it was the power of God on him. And that's why it was, because he was weak, he was fearful and trembling. So God has chosen the weak things of this world. And of course we can ask the question, why, why, and why? Well, that no flesh should glory in his presence. I mean, really, ultimately, I mean, this verse is as clear as it gets. There will be absolutely no chest pounding in heaven. But we do, we like to pound our chest here on this earth. So God likes to often teach us this lesson while we're here on this earth. Because it's not going to exist in heaven. But we have a problem with it here on earth. I mean, something good happens, and the first thing sometimes we think about is, look what I've done. Now I know as we mature as believers, we, we tend to get away from that, but there's a lot of this going on, and God has two ways to teach us this. Uh, this very lesson about why we, we should be bragging on God about everything we, we do in life instead of anything about ourselves. Because our human nature is to brag about ourselves. As I said many months ago, talking about social media, when you're face-to-face -face with someone, you talk, to, you talk to them about yourself about 30% of the time. That's just human nature. On social media, you talk about yourself 80% of the time. Everybody's a hero behind the keyboard, right? We love to brag. That's our nature. 
How many times you catch yourself doing that? As long as you've been saved, you're like, what, what, what was I thinking when I said that? I'm bragging about this or that. It's, we should be bragging about Jesus. So he has to teach us this lesson throughout life over and over. The first lesson is when he humbles us and when he breaks us. And that's never a pleasant experience, right? And, and I always go back to, to um, Daniel chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, you know, the boy, I, in fact, let me read this to you for Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this boy, he had it all. He was king over all, all the world. It, it said that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. And God says, really? So what did God do to that boy? He humbled that boy. He broke that boy. He took his mind from him. And not only that, but he sent him out to the wilderness for seven years to live like an animal. Now, brother, I don't know about you, but that's a harsh treatment. But God said, I'm going to teach you a lesson. And then God, after that seven-year period, restored old Nebi to the right mind. And that guy couldn't stop talking about God after that. He's like, oh, the honor God, praise God, extol God. I mean, God's the king. He has his own army. No one's going to defeat God. I mean, he just brags about God. That's exactly how that lesson taught him. We've all been there. You've been saved long enough. You've been, in, you've been humbled by God. And you've gotten up and said, oh, man, God, please keep me from ever doing that or thinking that way again. The other way, which I prefer more than the first example I gave you, is when God teaches this lesson, sometimes God, what he likes to do to prove himself to you so you brag on him, he likes to flex his muscle for you. And I mean flex his muscle. I call these, I've called these moments in life, and there are very few of them. Because most of what God does in our life is through the still, small spirit, or the voice of the Spirit of God. Still, small voice. But there's now and then, God stands up for you, and He does something that you say to yourself, that was all God. There's no way it could have happened to me. And I call those red sea moments. When you're boxed in, where God boxes you in, you got Pharaoh on this side, the army's after you, you got a Red Sea you can't cross, you are boxed in, you got nowhere to go, and all you have left is God. And God says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. In other words, watch what I'm about to do for you. If God be for us, who can be against us? And why does he do that now and then? And I've had a few of these. I wish I could just, I had time to share some of the things, the Red Sea moments in my life. But I would imagine you, if we went around and had a testimony, someone, everyone here would have at least one to say, man, I know it was God that did it. No question about God coming to my rescue. And I honestly believe that God does that for us so that we brag on him. Because no flesh is going to glory in his presence. And he teaches this value. I, I always go back to Jeremiah 33, 3. A great verse. Most of you should know this verse. Call unto me, and I will answer thee. And what I'll do? I will show thee great and mighty things. You know why God does that? So when you get in the dumps now and then, and you start doubting on him, and getting all your pity party with yourself, and we get there, God says, remember what I did for you back then? Now you brag on me, and like you did back then, and brag on me again, and watch me work. 
God's not going to fail us. But the problem is we look at what God does and go, man, it just doesn't make sense. And then the rest can be history if we're not careful. We can hurt ourselves in our spiritual life. But no flesh should glory in his presence. So what does all that mean based on the scripture? First of all, let no man glory in men. There go, do away with the, the hero worship that goes on in our society. I don't know about you, but I get tired of it. I mean, every magazine, you know, anytime you get politicians, I mean, these guys are sitting on, and women are sitting on pedestals as if they got power over you. Nobody has power over anybody unless God gives it to them. And that's why we don't glory in men, but we do as a society and as a world. That's just our human nature to lift up men. That's the wisdom of men. The Bible says, whatsoever you do, this is a great Christian motto, do all for the glory of God. Whatever you do in life, glorify God. What a great way to live your life. You know, you don't have to, you know, the old what would Jesus do bracelets. You all remember that? People wearing that stuff, you know, what would Jesus do? Well, it's kind of the same principle here. Is what I'm doing bragging on God? Is it making God look good and profitable? And who he is. And of course, we all know this verse, not of works, lest any man should boast. Of course, that once again, none of this with God in heaven. And that's a salvation verse, by the way, which, by the way, so many people struggle. I mean, I've been dealing with a couple people and uh, um, Catholic uh, background. They seem to love God. They seem to want to serve God and know God and and they're just caught up in something that they think they got something to do with their salvation. And it's so simple to tell them, but so profound for them. Like, what? 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 What do you mean? I don't. I thought I have to do this and that and this and that. And the Bible says, not of works, lest any man should boast. Nobody's going to get to heaven and say, well, Lord, I had something to do with it. And of course, he that glorieth, he that brags, let's say, let him brag in the Lord. I always say, brag, 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 but brag about the Lord. Amen? This is what Paul's trying to teach. Remember, 1 Corinthians, as much as we've spent time here, Paul's trying to de deal with the, the indoctrination of these people who have come out of the world, and all they've learned is about the elevation and the worship of man. That's all they know. They, they have all the philosophers and all the intellects and all the things that came, that baggage they brought into the church. Now, Paul's putting that all to rest. He's like, they, there's nothing about that. What matters is God's wisdom and what God can do. And that's why he's, he's dealing with this subject material at the conclusion of chapter 1. So, as we turn our attention to the next verse, Christ is made unto us. Now, remember, up to this point, he's been comparing the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man, or the wisdom of this world. What is the wisdom of man? The wisdom of God, in summary, it's what man can do. It's all about what man can do. The wisdom of God is what God can do or God has done. So he concludes here, he's like, okay, this is what man does. Here's what God has done for you. And he, he, he lists four things that, got, that are really important for us to know. And he, first of all, he is wisdom to us. He, we, don't have the, we don't go to the world for wisdom. Well, we shouldn't, right? We go to God for wisdom. If you want answers to anything, right here. It really is here. And it's about the learning to depend on God and understanding what God's ways are. 
We know from John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, capital W, right? So he's the incarnate Word, and we have the written Word. They, they align. This is the truth. He's the truth. He said, I am the truth, right? So if I want wisdom in this world, I just go to Christ. How simple does that get? But we struggle with that. We look for outside. You know, all the psychology and all the therapists and all the things that are going on, that's not the answer to our problems. I think the, the more we, we go that route, the greater our anxiety gets, the greater our depression gets, the greater our fears get. Why? Because God can't work when we work in that method. Because that's the wisdom of man. Now, I always think about this. When I'm thinking about wisdom, the wisdom that is from above is pure, where Christ is seated, right? We go to Him for wisdom. It's peaceable. It's fruitful. Uh, I think it's James chapter 1, verse 5. It says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. What did he say? Let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. He doesn't hold back, but let him ask in faith, not wavering. You don't ask God and then go over here and try... Try another method. If you say, God, I need this wisdom, but when you go over here, you seek counsel from the world, God's like, well, that's not going to work. So God, Jesus is our wisdom. This is in contrast to the wisdom of man. Righteousness. Okay. Jesus is referred to in Jeremiah 23, 51 as the righteous branch. Right? And that the Bible says that he might be the righteousness of God in him. In other words, so when we got saved, I love this doctrine. Impute, some people will say this is a deeper doctrine. I think it's one of the greatest doctrines in Scripture. Imputed righteousness is this simple. Jesus took your sin and nailed it to the cross. When you trusted Him, that sin is on Him, not on you anymore. And He took that sin, did away with it, and He took His righteousness and imputed it to you. He transferred it to you. And so now we have His righteousness dwelling in us. I have no ability to produce my own righteousness. I can do good works, but that doesn't mean anything to God. Man in his best state is altogether vanity. How do you like that for a positive? Best state? So the righteousness, any righteousness I produce after I'm saved is because Christ produces it in me. He gave me his righteousness. That's how I'll stand before him because his righteousness is on me. So, this is a great verse to prove that. The righteousness of the law might be fulfilled, notice what it says, in us. The Bible, this is where words do have meaning. Yes. Tremendous meaning. That word does not say by us. Because if it's by us, then we're doing it. It says it's produced in us. And that means it's Christ producing righteousness for the world to see he lives in us. And that's Christ made unto us. He's also made unto us as we've studied in the past just a couple weeks ago. Be ye holy, for I am holy. He, when you get saved, He sets you apart for His use. Every child of God has a use for God. A use and a purpose. And He sets you apart for that. And He makes you, He, he, he starts cleaning you up just like He's doing these Corinthians. He's going to clean them up. And they have problems, but God's going to purge those things from them to be more like Him. And then last, he says, He's redemption. 
He's purchased us. Now the Bible says, that's just we got bought back. We, we were once, uh, we're supposed to be His creation. We fell into sin. I know these are basic truths, but now God had to buy us back. You ever dwell on that? Just for a moment that the Creator went through all that He did, died for us, so He could have us back. Because he couldn't, he couldn't do it any other way. His, his holiness wouldn't allow it. So he took a horrific way of the cross. And to think ever how much he loves you and how much he's for you when you think about what he did. And he said, I've redeemed you. I've purchased you. You're mine. I bought you with a price. Now he wants to say, go out and glorify me. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, that's our whole life is to do something for God, to glorify Him, because you were bought with a price, and that redemption came through His blood. It came with a great cost to God, but He was willing to do it so we, He could be with us. Woo, man, about to have a spell, <laughs> as the old preacher would say. So, as a conclusion, concluding verse here, uh, he that glorieth, he that brags, let him glory in the Lord. Why? Because God's not in the business of sharing what belongs to him. He's a jealous God, by the way. Every child of God is his. And when that child of God starts dabbling with other gods, and there are a lot of different gods out there. You all, we, Some of them, we, we, money can be a god. You know, um, you could go on down the list. It could be a hero worship of other people. I mean, it doesn't, you know, there's all kinds of things that we will let get in the way, but God's like, oh, 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 don't be touching that. Touch not, taste not. He said that you're mine. I want you for myself, all for myself. I think we feel that way about our children. Now, most of us, we're kind of an older school. We weren't helicopter parents. You know what that is? you're just, I mean, you can't, won't let your kids, I mean, wherever they go, you go, man. You're just, you're hovering around them. And to a modern, our, our new generation, they, they even, they laugh about it, but they know it's true. They're helicopter parents. They're like, that's my child. They, they want to know everything about where that child is, what to do. That's how God is. <clears throat> I am the Lord. That is my name. Jehovah God. He says, and my glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Now you know why he just cannot stand when we dabble with other gods. But I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. He's jealous for us. Praise the Lord that he cares enough that when we wander, he's going to pull us back. Hopefully he'll pull us back with a little muscle flex, you know. Hey, I'm there for you. Just remember, remind you. Or he might pull us back with a little whack over the head, right? Just the way God works, but wonderful, great truths. Again, I can't say it enough. If we could get this truth down in our lives, especially in an early stay, my soul, would that, we avoid a lot of headaches when God starts working and we don't make sense of what he's, whatever he's doing, I'm just going to trust him. All right, let's pick up and we got a few minutes here. I'll get, I'll just give you a teaser into next week's study. Um, this gets interesting because now Paul's really not shifting gears, but you can sense that Paul's apostleship, his leadership, as you would call his skills, 
are called into question. Is he really an apostle? You'll see that in chapter 4. They, they have doubts about who he is, and they've gone off to other teachers, and they're all fighting with, you know, I'm, I'm with Apollos, and I'm with so-and-so. And Paul's trying to bring that, rally that back in to kind of give them an insight about his authority. But when you think of authority in the wisdom of men, you're looking for a leader that comes with great presence. I mean, I lived in the business world for 37 years. One of the things they looked for when you ran a, a multi-billion dollar business is you, brother, better have presence. They're not hiring you if you don't have presence. That is, when you walk into a room, you ought to make a difference. People ought to be like, I'm, I think I'm going to listen to what he or she has to say. That's executive presence. There's a commanding presence. We, we've been around that. People that have that, that gift or whatever, but that is true. But that's not true with God. That's not how it works. In the business world, it's one thing, but when it comes to spiritual thing, God often works in a different way. The person that you least think should be a leader or should be someone that should be teaching others is the one that probably most would discount as a failure or lacking the abilities. God says, ooh, I like that candidate because they're going to depend on me and not their own skills. And that's where Paul's going here because he goes, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech. We kind of put Paul on a pedestal. I mean, he did great things for God. Don't get, I, don't, I don't want to mean it that way. But when we look at Paul, he actually gives us a different picture of who he was. He's not what we think he is. Just like, it's interesting, you go back and you talk about you know, how God's ways are not our ways and the foolishness of God. Think about how God came to this earth. He was born in a manger. The Creator. I mean, talk about, he should be coming in royalty, right? He came in a manger. And the Bible says, there is no beauty that we should desire him. There goes that presence right out the door. You wouldn't, if, if Jesus were to walk by in the days, you wouldn't even recognize who he was. You'd have no clue until you heard him. Because there was nothing about him that would say, wow, blue eyes, blonde hair, look at that hunk. You know, or look at that guy, he's... He's successful. He look at that's how we think. That's a and Paul didn't come. He was like in many ways the Lord. There was nothing about him that was appealing. He didn't come with this amazing speech, and he said, "I came to you in weakness, fear, and trembling." That certainly doesn't sound like a successful leader to me. But it is with God. There were no fancy words, no philosophy, no psychology. There were no enticing words, no script, no ideology. Boy, that throws every TV preacher right out the door. I'm serious. This is like, you think about how sophisticated we've become, and, and I'll give you verses next week about the false prophets how, who have great swelling words of vanity. The Antichrist will show up one day, and the Bible says his words were smoother than butter, but there was war in his heart. You know, they're what? Sheeps on the outside, but wolves on the inside. So Paul, just plain, simple, street preaching type of guy. Nothing about him would be appealing. And he's going to prove that. You'll see here as we go through these verses that Paul was not what we think he was in, in appearance. And so just plain, what Paul did is he just told what God gave him. And how he does that, and I'll cl close on this, is, and we'll, we'll walk through this next week, 
is he often used his testimony as a means to testify for what God did. Somebody says, well, I don't know what to say, how to say it. You don't need to. You just need to tell them how God saved you and what that meant to you and what God's doing in your life. That's, all, that's what Paul did. All the, I know we read Paul's writings. He, he was sophisticated, spoke five languages, very intelligent, but he never relied on that as an ability. But when it came to his presence, we would never recognize him as being a successful leader, at least in appearance and in speech. I have a, I'm not the best speaker. I've, I've said that many, many times, that I have a street language type of approach. Um, I get excited about and passionate. There's all kinds of things that I consider weaknesses, but for whatever reason, God decides to use it. Now, the minute I try to get sophisticated on God, and for you folks, and try to be a little bit more articulate and a little bit more eloquent, then I think God says, mm-mm-mm, that's not what I'm going to use. I just need someone plain that tells it like it is. I'll do the rest. Step aside, Whiff. I got this. Just be the mouthpiece, however you are. And that's what Paul's about to share with us. Because you're going to see that in a few verses next week. But the testimony, we'll talk a little bit more also on that. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Okay, Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this few moments we've had to share with each other. The Word of God, thank you for helping us, Lord. Thank you for loving us and giving us the grace and the, uh, the revelation of truth, Lord, the, the unction of the Holy Spirit that gives us understanding. Oh, Lord, help us, Lord, to live by these truths and brag on you for everything we do. Help us, Lord, to glory in you. And Lord, I pray that, God, you'll help us, give us strength to do this and the insight and the remembrance of these truths. Thank you, Lord, for loving us as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.